Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Kelly for History 311. Uh, today we're going to be doing something, kind of repeating some of the stuff from uh, I did on Wednesday. However, I, you know, looking back over it, I realized I really should have expanded on some stuff. So we are. Uh, so get, get the old PowerPoint for, uh, for, for this week. Pull it on up. We'll start talking. Go over to a couple slides to where it says Democrats and Farmer Discontent. This is something I did not talk too much about and you really should know about it. If nothing else, well, you should know about it because it's important, but also it's on the quiz for this week, so I should tell you a little bit more about it. Now, after Reconstruction, this is after the, uh, the Democrats have retaken over all the South, uh, there are other issues in play. I mean, this class is African American history. Of course, I'm always going to talk about African Americans, but other things are going on in the country. There's a general sense, we talked about this with the end of Reconstruction, that the country is ready to move. The country is ready to, like, talk about other issues. And there's a growing sense of discontent amongst farmers across the entire country. Uh, not just in the South, who are dealing with the drop in cotton prices, but, you know, farmers across the entire country, in the Midwest, in places like Nebraska, Kansas, uh, theoretically has nothing to do with race. You see, because of industrialization, because of the railroads and other things, the economy got a lot more complicated. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, forces outside of one's immediate area could wreak havoc. A great example I always like to use is gasoline prices. Uh, gasoline's not around this time period, but, but think about it. Whenever you go to the pump, you know, the price may go up or down depending upon things not at all around you. you know, there could be a hurricane in the Gulf that hit like Houston and, and got rid of some of the refineries. So the price of gas just goes up 30 cents, and you don't really necessarily know why. Well, I mean, you know why, but even though everything's fine around Thibodeau, we see what's going on in other parts of the state or other parts of the country that is going to impact you. Same thing is happening after Reconstruction. Farmers, for the first time, are realizing, oh my gosh, there's a lot of things really bigger than us that are kind of messing us up. Uh, the railroads are a big one. The railroads are moving freight. They don't, uh, farmers don't feel like they are charging fair prices. Uh, same thing with big banks. You know, when you're talking about your local bank down the street, you, you, you might know the banker, you might know who they're giving loans to. But because to finance these really big industrial projects, like the railroad, you need much bigger banks that might operate in a completely different state. They might operate in New York, and you're down here in Thibodeau, and all of a sudden something happens in New York which makes the credit lines disappear in the banks in Thibodeau. Farmers really, really feel really, really messed over. And the problem is, even though this thing is impacting both black and white farmers, and as a rule during this time period, uh, those who are more involved with agriculture and the little man, quote unquote, particularly in the South, are Democrats. Uh, Republicans are the party of big business in this time period, the party of industrialists, the party of bankers. So farmers, both black and white, do not like this new system. They think it's unfair to the little guy. They think it's unfair to your small farmer somewhere, you know, black or white. Both of them feel equally screwed over. In a sense, both black and white farmers were equally screwed over this time period. However, the Democratic mainstays don't want any black participation. There are appeals, basically, if we get black and white people together, black and white farmers together, we can really make a change out of something doesn't happen. doesn't happen because the old hardliners of the Democratic Party, they don't care about it, all right? Likewise, because these farmers don't have a ton of money, they don't have that much influence, and most of these politicians, 
they're not super interested in the needs of these kind of poor farmers. Uh, yeoman is a, is a term you hear around this time period. Theoretically, it means somebody who owns their own land, but not a lot of land. But at this time, some of these people are like sharecroppers. Remember, sharecroppers could be black or white. Uh, they likewise, these farmers don't care too much for redeemer governments. Uh, they think that the redeemer governments, redeeming governments are the ones, whenever Democrats take re-control over the South after the Reconstruction, the people who take control are pretty much the people who were in control before the Civil War. A lot of them are Confederate people. And they're the old elites. They're the old plantation owners. And so these small farmers are like, hey, we got screwed over by the plantation owners. We don't think these quote-unquote redeemer governments are going to help us out whatsoever. Uh, they also don't care very much for wealthy businessmen and lawyers, which are theoretically the ones in the, um, in the redeemer governments. They don't care for them very much. Uh, they think they don't make stuff. Uh, that's something that they really try to push is the idea of producer values. As I, as I mentioned before, farmers were very vulnerable to exploitation. There's racial exploitation, which you should know quite a bit about, but also economic exploitation. That's the big one. That, I mean, when you hit people in their pocketbook, that's when people get really upset. And they could be exploited by these larger banks, these larger companies, giving bre breaks to bigger businesses, things like that. Because of the Industrial Revolution, as I, as I said, farmers feel left behind. They're no longer self-sufficient. They're very dependent upon banks who may be in another state. Uh, farming had always been seen as like, hey, it's a way you could be by yourself, you know, grow your own food, make your own profit. Now there's no way they can do that. So what ends up happening is something called the Farmers Alliance. Okay, now the Farmers Alliance starts in a place like Texas. Starts in Texas, gets very popular in the West, but like the near West, the Midwest. Nebraska, uh, Kansas, um, you know, Iowa, places like that. Uh, there's the Regular Farmers Alliance, which is an alliance of farmers. This is the White Farmers Alliance. Uh, I don't have a special slide for them, but they are the White Farmers Alliance. They just call themselves the Farmers Alliance. Basically, they want to cooperate on economic things. Uh, things like uh, we're going to buy in bulk. That's probably the best example is the farm co-op. The idea that if you buy in bulk, if all these farmers pool their money together, they can buy in bulk, and because of that, they can get more bank for their buck. So they start having farmer co-ops, you know, to buy things like seed, uh, to get better credit lines on things like farm equipment, things like that. Now, this gets pretty popular, this idea of collectivism, and some African Americans want to get involved too. They're like, hey, we're farmers as well. Hey, we have even less credit because we're pretty much former slaves, most of them are. So they don't have a lot of credit. They don't have a lot of finances to their name. And they think maybe being collective would be good. The problem is the Farmers Alliance does not want black people in it. Well, here's the thing. The leadership of the Farmers Alliance is okay with black people being in it. The leadership is like, hey, we have more people. We have bigger buying power. Green's the only color that matters. The problem is it's the rank and file members of the Farmers Alliance. They're the ones who feel like they're in direct competition with black leaders. They're the ones who kind of resent slaves. Remember, they, these people never own slaves. Most of the people in the Farmers Alliance, these are not your big plantation owners. They don't own slaves. They never own slaves. And now they're kind of resentful of slaves. They're like, great. You know, we couldn't compete with them when they're free. Now we're expected to be equal. Remember, racism, white supremacy has a very long history. 
So instead, some black farmers get the blessing of the Farmers' Alliance, and they make what's called the Colored Farmers' Alliance. By 1889, it has over a million members. Uh, They're loosely affiliated with the Southern Alliance part of the Farmers' Alliance. They're very loosely affiliated with the rest of the Farmers' Alliance. Um, they, they want to cooperate for things like voting, which doesn't happen because uh, most of the black men who could vote in this time period, they vote Republican. Uh, most members of the Farmers' Alliance, if they have a political preference, most of them are kind of apolitical. They're just ready to see who they want to vote. But they don't particularly care for the Republican Party because that's the party of the big bankers and industrialists, the one who, who are screwing them over. So even though the Farmers Alliance and the Colored Farmers Alliance, they're talking about, eh, you know, maybe we'll do something together. Maybe we'll buy things together. Um, the rank and file membership is not keen on this. And this gets even more complicated as time goes on because the 15th Amendment has had passed. And as we talked about last class, uh, they came up with all sorts of creative ways. Uh, the 15th Amendment is the one that guarantees citizens the right to vote. However, states started coming up with crazy wackadoodle ways to stop black men from voting. And the white members of the Farmers Alliance are actually okay with this. Farmers Alliance members, not the Colored Farmers Alliance, they never called it the White Farmers Alliance, but I'm just calling it for ease of you know, reference. Uh, the White Farmers Alliance never liked the idea of black men voting. Remember, they, they're they kind of okay with some economic cooperation if it means you know lower seed prices, but they're not okay with the idea that, hey, black people are going to get the right to vote as well. That being said, though, they do encourage black people, if they have to vote, to support Farmers Alliance candidates or those who get the backing of the Farmers Alliance. Those tend to be Democrat. Uh, This is where it gets squiggy because, okay, it's never like all black people, black men can't vote. It's just the vast majority can't. And so depending on like the county, if you were seen as a quote-unquote, reliable Colored Farmers Alliance member, you might be allowed to vote, provided you vote for who the White Farmers Alliance wants you to vote for. And and, and Alliance-backed candidates, they're not their own official political party. They're just a pretty powerful organization that has some sway over various candidates. They start getting seats in a lot of state legislatures, a couple of congresspeople, a lot of governorships, uh, mainly around Texas and Nebraska. They're the big places that really have Farmers Alliance thing. Now, with the success of the Farmers Alliance, which kind of has its ebb and flow, there's talk about maybe we should make a real third party, Uh, the party that speaks for the people, you know, the party that they feel the Democratic Party is just, you know, too much with the Southern elite, with the old plantation aristocracy. The Republicans are too much with this new industrialist, you know, these business people. They want a party for the little guy. If you go over one slide, you're going to hear about the Populist Party. The Populist Party really tries for a couple years to become a real third-party threat in the United States. Uh, That's one interesting thing about U.S. politics, is we don't normally have anything other than two parties at any given time. Um, Since Reconstruction, well, since the Civil War, it's been the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, Beforehand, you had, like, the Whigs and the Democrats. Then you had the Democratic Republicans and the Democrats, the Federalists, the Anti-Federalists. Uh, But really, for most of American history, it's been just the Democrats and the Republicans. We've never had a very strong third party. The Populist Party gets close. 
I'd argue the Progressive Party later on, which we may or may not talk about, gets a little closer. Uh, there's always, you know, loomings of maybe we'll have a real third party. Never seems to happen. But the Populist Party is one of the ones that actually gets some sway. It is a serious, put serious in quotation marks, challenge to Democrats and Republicans. Uh, if anything, it shows that there is a uh, voting block. There, there are some constituents who feel like they're being underserved by the current party structure. And basically, that's why the Populist Party is really able to get some sway. The idea with the Populist Party is they want to give government back to the people. They claim that the U.S. government is not very democratic. You know, uh, when it comes to, like, the Senate, the Senate is not elected by the people in this time period. It's elected by state legislatures. Basically, you vote for a state legislature, and the state legislature decides your senator for your state who goes to Washington. They don't think it's very fair. Likewise, there's a sense in general that things like poll taxes also impact poor white people. That's not a good thing as well. The idea is they want to give the power away from the industrialists, take it from the bankers, bring it back to those good old-fashioned farmer folks who feel like their way of life is being threatened. Now, they want radical change. They want radical change. That is one thing I'll say about the Populist Party. They have all sorts of wackadoodle, I don't want to say wackadoodle, but they sound pretty tame now, but they had some quote-unquote extreme measures they wanted. Uh, they want the government to take over a lot of stuff. They want the government to take over the railroads, the telegraph, the telephone lines. Uh, they want the government to help protect prices. They want the, it, It's almost like a socialist expansion. Um, Marx and Engels really aren't that popular yet. I think they have just published the Communist Manifesto. So, But the idea of collectivism really, really gets strong in this time period. And the populist is basically saying the government should be in charge of pretty much everything. They're talking about we should get rid of private industry when it comes to things that could really screw over farmers. And they're really urging Southern people. Remember, they get most of their support from, like, the West. Uh, Texas, Nebraska. I keep saying Texas, Nebraska. Those were the most important places. But think Midwest. Think farming places. I don't know if you've ever been to Kansas or Iowa. Not a lot of people out there. A lot of farmers. A lot of really good farmers, honestly. And so they're trying to make an appeal. They have a very strong base in the Midwest. And they say, you know what? Maybe we can appeal to the Deep South. There's a lot of poor farmers in the South. You know, people who never had a plantation, yeoman, stuff like that, sharecroppers, whatever they're called. And the Populist Party is making appeals to both black and white people. They want black men and white men to join them. This populist message, this power to the people message, they claim, you know what, there's more if we, it's almost a, you know what, I'm going to say it. It's kind of like, in a sense, sort of, kind of, Bacon's Rebellion. Remember Bacon's Rebellion we talked about, like, second week of class, you know, in colonial Virginia, wherever, basically, the, uh, the idea that getting, you know, indentured servants and slaves to come together, black and white, uh, would scare the crap out of the elite? That's kind of what the Populist Party is doing. The problem is the resistance is not coming from the elite. It's coming from poor Southern Democrat-leaning farmers. Pretty much the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, they are aghast with the idea that they would be compared to a black they, they are They are astonished by this idea. They're insulted by this idea that the Populist Party would link them to a black man would say, hey, you, you and this black guy, y'all need to vote together, y'all are just the same. 
you know, you're, you're both poor. You're just, you're being screwed over by the same guy. And maybe it's a way that Bacon's rebellion really got entrenched in the American psyche, particularly with poor white people in this time period. But they kill this alliance. I mean, the populist party, if the populist party had been allowed to really appeal to black voters and get them voting, uh, we could have had a very different end of the 19th century. I'm not saying I don't think they would have been you know, successful long term, but things could look very different. And that's something you have to realize about Reconstruction this period afterward, is things could look very different. What ends up happening, even though black voters could have tipped the scales in favor of the Populist Party, uh, basically, Southern Democrats really start appealing to white supremacy, and they really start going hard with, you know, we can't let black men vote, period. This is one of the ways that disenfranchisement comes around. It's when it looks like black voters could possibly tip the scales if this populist party thing actually happens. It's one of those Bacon's Rebellion things where it's like, ooh, this is a little too close for comfort. So that's when we get into disenfranchisement, which we all talked all about. You know, getting around the 15th Amendment with things like the Mississippi Plan, which said, like, you know, uh, residency requirements, the poll tax, uh, literacy tests come around. Uh, the, the grandfather clause, all these things come about basically not because they want to be racist for no reason. That's one thing you have to realize about racism. Racism is a tool. I've said it a million times in this class. It's a horrible tool used for horrible reasons, but they want to use it to make sure black men don't tip the scales in favor of like this kind of populist uprising. That's where we get into. So if you go a little bit further, uh, we got it. We talked about Jim Crow last time. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit more about convict lease. So if you go over quite a bit more, um, convict lease, as I said, comes after the exodusters. I'm just kind of skipping ahead a little bit. Let's see. If we go to do, 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 well, let's talk about sharecropping a little bit more because comes comes in. So you also have renting. All right, you also have renting, which is actually seems a little bit preferable to sharecropping. Uh, sharecropping, you are in debt. You are beholden to them. Uh, renting, it's it's a lease, all right? It's more of a lease, basically. Uh, you pay a landowner for use of the land. Uh, this is slide 54, if you're curious. Um, payments was usually made in, in, in cash, if somebody had it. Uh, basically, sharecropping is done whenever you don't have the cash or you don't have the leverage against a farmer or a landowner. Um some black people try to get it. So they really do try. Uh, sharecropping is seen as like the, the job of last resort. However, you know, the, these people own their own animals. They own their own tools. That's not something you had in sharecropping. Sharecropping is pretty much a way to just really screw over the poorest of the poor. Those who had no other choice. Uh, renting is okay. You won't go into debt for it. Does that make sense? Sharecropping, you can lose your shirt. If somebody had the means to be a renter and not a sharecropper, they would rent. A lot of them are, you know, African-American. But what if you're a little short one? Well, you might have a crop. You might have a crop. Uh, basically, if you were in debt to somebody, if you try, you know, let's say it's a bad year and your mule dies, so you have to buy another mule, but you're not going to get the mule in until harvest, you could put a lien on your harvest, even if you're a renter. Uh, theoretically, you should not go above your sharecropper landowner. You should not go above the landowner if you're a sharecropper. But there are ways around it. Just like if you're in debt, other people are going to get you in debt somehow. Um, 
hate to use it as a comparison, but it's like a payday loan. Like, they don't get you on the initial debt. They get you on the subsequent debt when you can't make it up. Uh, merchants are not very, you know, basically the people who loan the money feel, you know what, now I have an interest in you. I want to make sure you grow what I want you to grow. Oftentimes they really make them get uh, grow cotton because they feel it has the best chance to make money back, which actually makes the price of cotton go even lower. It's, it's a horrible lean system. Now it screws you over even further because if it gets, uh, until your debt is paid, you can be in what's known as peonage. Uh, peon. Peon is somebody, you might hear that when you talk about like Game of Thrones stuff, like, oh, there's a peon. Uh, basically a peon is somebody, peonage is basically somebody who is in debt for a farm thing, and basically you have to work off the debt. All right, you have to work off the debt, which is against federal law. Uh, this is too close to slavery for the federal government, uh, at first, at least. The problem is, uh, okay, the the thing that made peonage different than the convent lease system, which is we're going to talk about in just a second, peonage said you cannot leave the land. You cannot go anywhere else. You have no right to leave this land until you pay off the debt doing the same thing. Now, under convict lease, theoretically, you are doing other things to pay off your debt. You're doing things that might get paid a little bit more. That peonage says you have to stay there. You know, even if you might make some more money doing something else, which could theoretically help you pay off the debt more, you have to stay there. Uh, that's up there with serfdom. Uh, serfdom, that's a middle-aged feudal system thing. Uh, the idea of a serf is a what's known as a slave to the land. Uh, we never have serfdom here in I mean, you could argue sharecropping to serfdom because you can't leave the land. Uh, but, but a serf is like a slave, except like if there's a new landowner, if the owner moves, they don't move. They stay there. Peonage is theoretically the same thing. Now, uh, yeah, and like I said, this was theoretically against the law, but come on, white supremacy, white, white jury is going to make sure that it's Now, you do have some black landowners. The problem is... Um, Staying black landowners, which is tough. Uh, basically, a lot of white people would not sell land. Uh, there was never any mass, you know, land giveover in U.S. history. Uh, the 40 acres of mule thing never really happened. I, I should mention black people could become uh, landowners through the Homestead Act, which uh, basically allows you to take unclaimed land. It was passed in 1862. Uh, basically, if you go to like somewhere out west, if it was considered frontier, nobody owns it. Uh, if you stay there for 10 years and have an improvement on it, you can become a landowner. Problem is, it's usually pretty far out west where there's not a lot of resources, and most former slaves don't have a lot of resources. Some do do this. That's what we, we talk about the exodusters and stuff in uh, Oklahoma and Kansas. Actually, exodusters are just Kansas. Uh, still, though, not a huge number. Uh, and this does not happen in the South. Pretty much all land in the South is claimed, which is where most African Americans live. Uh, still, black land ownership does increase about 500% uh, from 1870 and 1900. Uh, in more rural areas, it tends to be more of a thing to have African American land ownership. Uh, there was a system put in place against them, but still, you know, they did the best they can. Still, this was often cause for white violence, basically the idea that poor whites don't have video of black people getting better than them. 
are being uppity as if you will. Some examples, uh, for instance, Henry Watson drove his new car. Car got killed. Likewise, Anthony Crawford gets into an argument with a merchant, and then he's killed afterwards. And now we get to convict lease. Okay? Here's the thing. They made up all sorts of wackadoodle crimes for black people. They just made things up. Loitering is the big one. Loitering is a big one. Vagrancy laws. Basically, if you were a black person who was not working, if you were your own person, if you're like, you know what, it's Saturday, screw this, I'm going down to the general store because I work for myself, I want a day off, I just want to like kick up and chill with my friends in front of the general store. You could be arrested. You'd be arrested if you didn't have papers. And if they claimed, hey, you know, I don't need papers, it's like, well, you need to show that you're working. I'm my own landowner. No, you're not. That sort of thing. Uh, pretty much, you could be arrested. You would go to an all-white judicial system. Judges were white. Juries were pretty much all-white. Very rare would you get an all-black jury. Uh, you would never get a mixed-race jury. Uh, you might get an all-black jury if you're, like, an extremely, like, rural part of Mississippi, like in the Delta, which is just African-Americans. However, if, if you're anywhere else in a town, it's going to be an all-white jury. There's no, no mixed race juries in this time period. Uh, if you're the black person who was like the recipient of a crime, like if you're the victim, too bad you really never got a conviction in your favor. Pretty much uh, if anybody did anything to you, especially if it was a white person who screwed you over or like was assaulted you or like stole from you, good luck. It's not going to happen. Uh, so a lot of times I'm not, I'm not going to say that word, but being a white man's N word, uh, the idea being that basically to kind of get around the system, some African-Americans start kind of affiliating themselves with like prominent white people. It seems kind of a continuation of slavery. Oh, you're this person's man, whatever. It's kind of an icky thing. Uh, it did theoretically protect you somewhat from some harsh punishments. That rarely happened though. Uh, what it did end up happening is basically black people got convicted more often for way higher sentences for like way less crimes. And that's where we really get into the convict lease system. The convict lease system is basically where the, all the states start using the crap out of that loophole, the 13th amendment of slavery is illegal, except, except as punishment for a crime. Basically uh, it costs money to like, house a prison. Um, I don't know if you know this about prison. I'm not speaking from experience. I've, I've never been to prison. I mean, I've visited prison. I've never been to prison. Crime. I've never committed a crime. I should, I should... Woo! Okay, this is not Telly admits to murder time. This is... I've never committed a crime, let alone been convicted, let alone served time. But most of your time spent in prison is kind of boring. You're kind of just sitting there, you know, in the pen... Um, you know, behind bars, really not doing much of anything. I mean, yes, if you're if you're a better prisoner, if you're not considered a flight risk or violent, you're probably allowed to like leave your your uh, your cell and you know walk around, hang out in the yard. Whatever. Uh, it does cost quite a bit of resources to like feed you, clothe you, uh, provide guards. That that costs money, and that's on the taxpayer. You know, the taxpayer has to pay for your crimes, pay for your housing. And a lot of states don't think this is a very good idea. You know, prisons are something that, you know, do cost money. A lot of taxpayers, they're not crazy about the idea about paying for it. And so, all of a sudden, prisons are like, hey, we have a labor force. 
we've got a huge labor force of men who are really not doing anything. They're really just sitting here doing nothing. You know, we, we have them in jail for these crimes. We should start, I don't know, leasing them out. Leasing out convicts or convict lease. It's literally exactly what it says on the pen. They start telling local farmers or local whatevers, hey, do you need workers? Well, you can pay us like next to nothing. You're going to have workers. You're doing us a favor. You're doing us a favor because we're not going to have to house them. Uh, generally, whoever like bought the, the, uh, the lease had to feed them. So, you know, feed them. So basically the prison saving money on lunches because like, you know, the convicts leave for the day. Uh, a lot of times the, they would take over the housing of the prisoners. Uh, I mentioned in class when I talked about Birmingham steel mills and the steel mines, uh, they actually house these convicts. They literally house them. So pretty much you're no longer staying in a prison from the state. You're staying at a private business, pretty much chained to a bed. You're in chain gangs. I'm sure you've seen pictures of chain gangs, convict lease. And basically because of this, prisons start making some money. Prisons start making some real money. And all of a sudden, prisons, which were kind of at a loss, you know, they, they, they lost money. They didn't lose money. I mean, it's in the public good. They're now turning a profit. What does this mean? Well, it means that we got to increase the number of arrests. We got to make more prisoners because, hey, there's demand. Farmers, businesses, they want cheap labor. I mean, it's labor that you know is going to be there. It's labor you know you don't have to pay very much. Labor that, like, you can try to make them when they're sick. You could beat them. You literally could. Like, you could beat a prisoner if you bought their lease. Like, businesses do this. Railroads do this all the time. They drain swamps. They do the dirty jobs. Uh, draining swamps is a big one. Um, I'm sure y'all have been around a swamp before. Swamps are awful, all right? I mean, they're pretty. They got the Spanish moss, and I'm sure you get some good fishing in there or something. But they are horrible marching land. You cannot build them. And so to drain a swamp, that it, it, it's, it's humid, it's messy. you got God knows what other bugs and gators and what up there. Nobody wants to do that job. You can't pay somebody enough to do that job. Ordinarily, you would have to pay somebody a premium to do that. Now, thanks to the convict lease system, these prisoners have no choice about what they do about this because they're convicts. It, it's either like, hey, you can do this or you can stay in the pen or, honestly, a lot of times this is for debt. Uh, so many times, it's basically somebody else has purchased your debt, and then they are going to put you to work for it. Uh, some of these companies get very common. That somebody doesn't even have to be arrested, theoretically. Uh, for a crime, you could just be in debt, and then basically somebody pay, bought your debt, and they tell you this is how what you're going to do about it. So just imagine if like Visa called you up. It's like, hey, uh, we bought your debt. Um, you're going to be working for us in the salt mines now. And, and, and as I said in class, I hate to use the word worse than slavery, because slavery was god-awful, okay? Slavery was god-awful, but whenever I read accounts of what happened in Birmingham and the steel mills, um, there's a great documentary called, like, Slavery by Another Name. PBS did it a while back, Slavery by Another Name. Highly recommend it. Um, that's what the convict lease system the convict lease system was slavery, except it's slavery where you have no value. Like, you could be beaten, like, like I'm, not, I'm not condoning slavery. I'm not saying anything nice about slave masters. But a slave master had to pay the equivalent of, like, $40,000 to get you. They feel like they bought your life. Like, that was a major 
investment. It, it, you're buying a human being, it's horrible. But on the convict lease system, it's like dollars. Like if adjusted for inflation, it's well under minimum wage. Well under minimum wage. Uh, scandals start happening where basically there's a bunch of expositions about like, hey, this is horrible how bad it is. You know, people are getting like years, decades for like $15 debts that somebody bought and, and collected on. Uh, states start to outlaw it, but theoretically, this is going to get into sweetie territory. Still kind of exists in a sense. Like, you can hire convict labor. Um, it's not as brutal as it is as it was back then, I will say that. Like, you can't make a convict stay at your house, at your place of business. You can't beat them. You can't hold them for longer than their actual uh, prison sentence or a- after they pay them debt. Oh, that's another thing they did all the time in convict lease system was basically they held the convict after they already paid off their debt or after they were supposed to be released because of the labor. But you can still hire convicts from various jails, various parishes, various counties to do labor, to do like stuff around your house. Uh, not Sorry, not around your house, around your business. A lot of times state industry, state, state agencies, there we go, use it to do things like painting. I've, I've worked at a place where... Um, they, they, they want to do some painting, and uh, they hired convicts because it was cheaper than minimum wage. And like I said, these are trustees. These are nonviolent cons nowadays, but still, it's still kind of a thing. You might have heard the phrase, you know, you're sentenced to however many years plus hard labor. This is the hard labor. So like I said, this is kind of the, uh, I don't know, what, what should I call this? The addendum, the expansion pack, the, uh, the annex to last week's lecture, just talking a little bit about the Progressive Party. And also, just how jacked up the justice system is. All right, take care.